Hi, and welcome to Deer IQ, where smart hunting begins. I'm Adam Lewis, 20 plus year educator, 30 plus year deer hunter, untastefully seasoned outdoor writer, and I'm here to help you achieve what we all hope for, to be truly greater deer hunters. We're toward the end of our series, Private Land, When You're King, or when you're in control, what are the specific moves and decisions to ensure you have better chances at good deer and don't mess it up, which too many times we do and don't even realize it. Today we're with special guest Ty Easley of the well-known TV show Heartland Bow Hunter. And Ty is known for his uncommon and consistent success on old deer, six to eight year old bucks, which is almost unheard of. How does he do it? And I will tell you, he doesn't use outfitters. And if you have land, you can make the exact same strategic moves he does. So before we get to that, I want to challenge you to do a couple things. First, download our free journal to use with this podcast. That's really going to help you keep up with all the key details and nuances Ty reveals. Second, as you do that, here are the top look-fors or things to look for during this episode. What are Ty's key traits he looks for in private land when he's trying to get new land access? What is his initial scouting strategy before he busts in there on new land? And what specifically is he looking for as he sets up a new land strategy? How does Ty determine where to put what he calls kill plots? And this one is huge. It's not what most people do and he gets uncommonly good results on specific mature bucks. What specific tells or characteristics has Ty looked for and specifically with a buck named Chunk that helped him hone in and specifically target this buck and kill him. And I have a few challenges at the end that I believe will truly take your hunting skills up several notches. So make sure to stay tuned and listen for that. And now let's get to the podcast and up your deer IQ. All right, I'm joined by Ty Easley here, um, looking at the topic of private land hunting and when you're king, when you're in control, what does that look like? And looking at uh, perfect setups, what does it take? Um, what do the great hunters do on private land and perfect setups? And uh, if you don't know Ty, uh, some of you I'm sure do, but uh, Ty is a part of Heartland Bow Hunter, and I actually met Ty. I was looking back, it was in 2016, uh, went to their film school, and I met Ty there. Uh, we just got chatting, super cool guy, um, but he's also shot a lot of big bucks, has a lot of experience with that. And so, Ty, welcome to the podcast. Appreciate you having me on, Adam. How are you doing today? I'm doing doing good, doing good. So yep. that's a little intro, but Ty, uh, tell us a little more about you um, as far as a uh, hunter and just uh, who you are so our guys, uh, listeners kind of know. Well, uh, gosh, so I kind of got into hunting at an early age uh, and kind of got into it doing the more fun type hunting, if you will. I say, you know, rabbit, quail, dove, duck you know, goose, my dad got me introduced to it at a young age and, and just fell in love with the sport. And, uh, it was probably, I think I got into deer hunting around 10 years old and then started archery around 13. I'm 48 now. So uh, I've been doing it for quite a, quite a few years, but didn't get really into it until probably 
right around 20 or so. And then it's just progressed. And, and now it's pretty much a year long adventure endeavor. And I just, I, I just enjoy every aspect of it now. I just, I, 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 I was very fortunate to find that passion at a young age and, and be able to, you know, enjoy it my whole life where, you know, I think a lot of people struggle to find something. I always feel sorry right. for people that don't have anything, but, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I love it. I'll just say another thing, <clears throat> excuse me, if you're not familiar with Heartland Bowhunter, you need to check it out because they're known uh, in the industry as really being, and this is why I went to their film school, to be honest, they're, they're really uh, good at the videography. They really uh, took it to a, a different level as far as just recording hunts, which is very difficult to do. Uh, just their their way of their approach with that uh their photography is really good and just uh honestly i think the lost art of storytelling these guys do really good at um which it isn't isn't easy to do but it's kind of a lost art especially in the in the hunting community when you watch some of these shows and they give the story away before you even get into it you know so it's a great thing that uh you do, and you're doing it all while you're hunting, at least the video of it, which is not an easy task to do. Um, so let's jump in here, Ty. So tell us a little bit about your, I guess, uh, hunts, what they look like. I know you hunt around a lot of different places, but your your base is in Missouri, right? And yeah. uh, your general hunting, uh, what would you say it's like? as far as where you hunt and because i think a lot of guys get the impression if if someone's on tv that oh it's all you know high fence or it's all you know just i know you do some uh hunts without fitters but is what's it really like as far as your hunting experiences yeah so personally myself and i you know the the team we have a team of like eight to ten guys so everybody's a little different as far as uh their availability and to travel and you know what they can and can't do but personally myself um i pretty much hunt missouri the only out of state hunting i really do is kansas uh which is pretty much just next door uh, i do go on an outfitted hunt out there and it is uh through heartland pride outfitters so they're the way they're set up is it's no high fence at all it's basically they just lease farmland around the area uh that they that they have and they have grounds and all over Kansas and Nebraska and everything. Uh, but, but basically that's the only outfitted hunt I go on. They're, they're pretty great with us letting us kind of have, you know, a few different farms to hunt on when we go out there. Cause they know we're kind of those do it yourself type guys where we like to go in and, uh, you know, kind of learn about a farm. They pretty much give us, uh, some valuable Intel as far as pictures and everything. And, you know, we kind of take it from there. Uh, for the most part, all the properties I've hunted on uh, around my house here are all within 30 minutes, which gives me the availability to hunt as much as I hunt, you know, uh, otherwise you know, I, I wouldn't be able to do what I do. So, but the one key factor I'd say that allows me, we've, we've had these properties for probably 25 years and I don't own any of them other than the 10 acres I live on. So these are just farms that I've kept build really good relationships with the landowners and just stayed in contact with them and, you know, help them out whenever needed to be. And, and yeah, that the, 
as far as the terrain goes around here though, it's mostly timber, a lot of croplands, you know, like Missouri's kind of known for, not a some ridges and stuff, not a lot of big hills or anything, but but it's a good it's a good mix. It's a it's a real good mix. It's a great place for for whitetails to live and strive for sure. Right. And I think a main point there is we were talking before I started recording, uh Ty has a regular job. He's got all these projects going on we were talking about. He's pretty much a normal guy that happens to film his hunts and uh, hunts around home, all these things. So very uh, applicable what we're going to talk about to uh, just normal hunting, right? The normal hunter out there, the average guy is very similar. Um, And uh, what does it take to have success? And we were mentioning you know this recently nda came out with a study just kind of showing uh the percentages of where deer are taken you know and roughly it's different in every state but roughly 90 percent are taken on private land and that is becoming harder and harder to come by um with leases you know getting popular with permission just getting harder and harder to get and you kind of started touching on it there though but the what i want to dig into a little bit more is what do you think is a, a key to getting uh, and keeping good private land access? Because you said you own 10 acres and that's it, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. I have, other than that 10 acres, I have four other farms that I hunt. And like I said, I've been on all of those anywhere from, gosh, 20 to 30 years now. Uh, and it and it takes it takes work. It takes, you know that being uncomfortable getting making sure you're you're staying in good with the landowner but i mean the the first step for me is is always you know building that relationship getting them to trust you if you can obviously find someone that knows a friend somebody that knows somebody that that helps a lot uh but but just building that relationship with the landowner as far as helping him get out there and mend fences with him help him you know putting cattle back if they get out uh i've you know, take some deer meat, some crappie, buy gift cards. That goes a long way, you know, at the end of every year and just basically just doing what they, you know, want you to do. Now, some of them are a little different than others. Some of them really don't want to be bothered at all. And, uh, I'm, I'm okay with that. I just, you know, talk to them a few times a year, make sure everything's still good to go. And, but, uh, yeah, just, just staying in contact. Cause I think there, you talk to a lot of people that just hop into a property they get permission once and they just think they got it for the rest of their lives you know and that's and those are the ones that usually you know will put a bad taste in a lot of landowners mouths because you do go ask you know somebody and the first thing they'll say is oh i used to let a guy hunt here and he's right you know he ruined it for everybody and you know that's where you just got to try to build it back up and try to build that trust and try to get your foot in the door but that's it's most the uh, you know the things that I try to do is just staying in good contact and, and making sure the landowner's happy. Yeah, I think a, a lot of people discount just the idea. That it's just it's a it's a relationship that you're mm-hmm. building or keeping building, and you can't just like with anybody, a friend or a spouse or something, you can't ignore that. You know, it's not just a one and done type thing. It's about building that over years. Um, and really, I, th- I think caring about that person, like, uh, I, have a, I have a short story here um, to add to that, just to, as an example, like, I started hunting in Ohio, so I'm in Michigan, and I started hunting in Ohio 
uh, 10, 11 years ago. And I first started just cold calling and knocking on doors. Mm-hmm. And like, I got a lot of no's. Um, but a few people, uh, and I was really surprised <laughs> the few people that said yes, you know, it was like a shock. Um, right. uh, but that wasn't it. You know, I had to d- develop a relationship with these people. And this one older couple uh, that was super nice, they let a bunch of people hunt there. And that's another thing um, we can chat about. But they were just super nice and welcoming. And after a few years of hunting there, uh, they were like, well, we, we see you come down here and camp. I was like, well, yeah, I came with this, you know, up the road there. Well, they're like, well, why don't you just stay with us? <laughs> they had this whole basement that was like a finished house, and they never even went down there. And so after that point, I just started staying with them, and now I'm, I'm like family with them. And they, you know, they, they treat it like, oh, you're coming to visit us, and you're kind of hunting too when you're there. Yeah. Um, but it developed into that, and that's probably an extreme case of like your dream thing because I don't have to pay rent, I don't have to pay <laughs> our, our hotel, you know, or anything like that. Yeah. I, I don't, yeah. I don't lease it, um, and I just help them out when I can. I like you said, gift cards and stuff like that. You just treat them like people, like family, yeah. and usually people will treat you well back. And you may get something leased out from underneath you, and that's just. That's just the game. You know, that's just how it is. Right. But uh, a lot of it's just really basic stuff that I think people overlook or they, they put hunting in front of the relationship. And that's when I yeah. think you, you get in trouble. But yeah, yeah. Most of the time when I think the only properties I've ever really lost in the past were always due to someone passing away. And then the, the other family members took it over and they, you know, decide to sell it or don't want anybody else on there, which is totally understandable it's disappointing but it happens and that's why you know you just try to keep that good relationship as long as you can and you know blessed to have the opportunity while you have it and take advantage of it so but yeah it, it they obviously saw something good in you to let you do that because yeah that's that that is definitely one of those extreme circumstances <laughs> where you don't hear something like that all the time right right great opportunity for sure and yeah it has been you really like the people and got to know them well. And like you said, they're like family. I mean, that's just a great, great, great moment for that all that happened for you. Yeah. And it is. And I think also what you said there, uh, keeping in mind that this, this is a blessing type thing. This isn't a right or, you know, um, it it could disappear real quick and just keeping that in mind and, uh, knowing that it it is a a time frame probably it's probably not going to be forever, but, uh, enjoy it while you can type thing. Um, as you look around, let's say you were looking for some new spots. Um, and I think a key there too is you you have more than just one spot, right? Oh, uh, because if you lose one uh, and that's the only spot you have, that's kind of devastating, right? Then, oh. then what do you do? But if you have at least a handful, then uh, one spot may be hot that year, another not, or you might lose one spot, but you still, it's kind of like you're diversifying your portfolio, so to say. Yeah. Um, let's say Ty lost all his spots this year. Uh, they just disappeared. Yeah, it'd be <laughs> devastating, right? Uh, funny. <laughs> what, <laughs> what would you look for? So if you're looking for a spot um, in your area that you know would be a spot you get access, but also be a spot to maybe hold the caliber of deer you would want to go after, what type of things would you look for? 
Uh, one of the first things, uh, and I'll start off by saying I did happen to lose one of my properties this year. Oh, sorry. Still, it just got sold. I'm working the angle still. It's not looking, it started off looking good, not looking so good now. Okay. Didn't mean but to hit a sore spot there. Yeah, that's a no, no, no. It, like I said, it happens. And thank, thank Lord, I do have other spots to hunt. But as far as looking for spots, uh, honestly, um, I prefer if I can find a spot that is near, obviously a decent amount of, of acreage is nice. Something that's fairly wooded, you know, very, fairly big piece of property. And to me, within 30 minutes of my house is a big deal just because I want to be able to access it and to hunt it as much as possible. If you start drifting out further and further away, then you might just become a weekend warrior. And I, that's just not me. I, I want to be able to hunt multiple times a week. I want to be able to get off work, go to the woods and especially early season when I have that daylight. Um, the number two thing I really like to look for is a piece of property that maybe is adjacent to either an area that doesn't get hunted, whether it be a park area, whether it be uh, some big landowner that doesn't allow any hunting because I know those types of areas are going to hold more deer. Um, then obviously I'd look for, you know, terrain. I, if I, I'm not going to go knock on somebody's door that has 300 acres and it's all cropland and there's just a fence trail around it. And there's really not any woods to hold a bedding. Cause I mean, the deer have to bed somewhere and they, they, they like thick cover. And that's, that's a, Probably one of my main focuses is where deer bed. When I think about hunting, that's probably what I spend probably 75% of my time thinking about is where is this deer going to be bedding, you know, while I'm hunting. So, you know, where is it going to be heading back to bed in the morning? Where is it going to be coming out in the afternoon? So, but yeah, those are the things that I, I kind of think about when I'm looking for a piece of property. And if I was going to go knock on a door, those, you know. Yeah, good, good points. Those, those sanctuary type areas um, as you look at those, what is your favorite private setup? So within that, you, so you got some bedding, right? And, um, what does that look like for you and something you're looking for that did just, uh, time and time again, you would pick that or try to, um, replicate that for, uh, setting up and finding again, like a mature buck. Yeah. I mean, obviously the first thing I usually do if I'm on a new piece of property is, cameras are so important to me because I want to know what deer are on the property. And, you know, you can get out there and scout as much as you want, but cameras play such a vital role. And that also not only that benefits me in that way, but to having, you know, four or five properties to hunt on running those cameras on multiple properties, I can get an idea of what deer on each property. So I know where I want to hunt, but as far as like once I find the deer I'm going after, cause it's usually, I'm usually one or two deer every year that I'm pretty particular about. Um, sometimes I narrow it down to one. Sometimes I try not to, but, uh, once I do that, I try to learn where the deer is bedding, um, and where he spends most of his time. There are some deer that travel a lot more, which make it a lot more difficult. In fact, the deer I'm kind of going to be after this year is a pretty good traveling deer. He covers, it's funny because I hunt two different farm, actually three different farms that are all within about a mile of each other. So this deer has been on every one of them, which is very frustrating. It's a lot easier when a deer is a homebody and he stays in a, you know, 200 mm. acre area, but I really try to key in on their bedding area. I look for the thicket where they're bedded, where they're going to spend most of their time at. 
And then I try to go in if the landowner allows it and build what I call a kill plot, you know, as close to their bedding as possible without disturbing their bedding area. Obviously, I'll disturb it when I'm building the plot and when it's getting ready. But as far as access in and out, I want to make sure my access in and out is, you know, good as possible with the wind, you know, not bumping any other deer. Because let's face it, you're not always just hunting the one deer you're you're picking out. You're all, you're you're going to be hunting all the deer in that area right. as far as trying to, you know, slip in and not get detected. But if I can build that usually half acre plot within a couple hundred yards of their bedding area, that really tips the odds in my favor, you know, and then it's just a matter of waiting until the time's right. And, you know, hopefully it works out and makes the makes the perfect shot. So, yeah, I think there's a lot in what you just said there. So I'm going to try to tease it out a little bit here. Yeah. So first of all, I think. Hi, this is Adam Lewis with DeerIQ.com, and this is your high IQ moment. If you have access to private land, whether by permission or through leasing, many times a landowner can be convinced to allow you to put in small plots or kill plots. If you build a relationship over time and can show them the benefits to the wildlife and their land, this isn't as hard a sell as you may think. For a more full overview of managing your land, check out our blog, Make Your Land a Buck Factory, link below. And if you're getting something out of this podcast, consider sharing it with a friend who may benefit and also commenting, liking, or reviewing depending on where you're watching or listening. This helps the podcast grow and it's greatly appreciated. Okay, and now back to the podcast. Yeah, I think there's a lot in what you just said there. So I'm going to try to tease it out a little bit here. Yeah. So first of all, I think a lot of guys, if they get access to a property or whether it be their own property, maybe they just bought something or they've had something and they're thinking about putting in food plots or like you said, if sometimes permission properties will allow that, a kill plot, a really small plot. And just to define that, you're talking something small that... Uh, what would be the size of a kill plot that you might put uh, in? Most of mine are usually about 50 by 50, right around there, 50 yards by 50 yards. Um, I think what an acre is, isn't it 90 by 90, if I remember right. I'm not, I'm not sure. Don't, don't quote me on that, but I think that's what it is. But I try to keep them around a half acre or so. I, they can be a little bit bigger, but if you get them too much bigger, there's a good chance a deer could come out and feed in the far end of the food plot and you never get a shot. So the kill plots, I try to keep them and sometimes some of them are even, you know, maybe a third of an acre. So I want to be able to shoot 90% of the plots. So if he comes into the plot, there's a good chance I'm going to have a shot at him is that's what I kind of define as, as a kill plot. And I try to put it right on the edge of the bedding area. So also an element of security there too, with mm-hmm. smaller, um, and I think a lot of guys uh, will look at a property and they'll put a food plot where they think it makes sense because of where it's easy to put or other a variety of other reasons. And I don't think they really think about this. And I think this is a huge point that you need to lo- know your land first, right? You, you need to figure out where are they bedding, especially where is uh, this mature buck bedding that you've identified. So you've done work beforehand. You, you don't just 
run in there right away and put in a food plot, right? Right. Like you've done a lot of homework. You figured out where this buck is living, where he feels comfortable, and then you make it super easy on him to eat your food, basically, right? right? Yeah. I mean, they're they're lazy by nature. I mean, I mean, honestly, you you, you find that it's it's obvious. You walk around, you find the fence gaps. There's where the trails are. They, you know, if it's a really thick area, they're gonna go around. You know, they're gonna go around a little bit where it's easier to walk for them. I mean, they they're lazy by nature and. I mean, they're driven by their stomachs majority of the year. I mean, obviously they need food, water, cover, and except for during the rut where they're driven by something else there. But uh, majority of the time, it's food. So if you can if you can key in on that and figure out what they're feeding on, you know, at a specific time of year, which is, you know, for our season here in Missouri, it starts in September and runs September 15th to January 15th. So there's there's stages to it here for sure where you got to change your tactics a little bit but uh if you can key in on their food and and stay close you you mentioned a very good point where that is one thing you get a deer in a giant field and a lot of times the deer will come out i I film a lot in the summer on bean fields and most of the deer when they hit the field they're they're on the edge for a second looking around make sure everything's cool and then they're they're moving quick a big mature deer out to the middle of that field well a kill small kill plot as long as if they move to the middle of it, you got a great shot and it is so small and such, they're so close to cover. They feel a little more secure, you know, being able to, and I usually even, I don't like completely clear my kill plots. I don't know if you've seen any of my videos, but almost all my kill plots, I leave a few trees in certain spots for scraping yeah. for a little bit of, you know, put the deer at ease. I think it helps them a little bit, keeps them relaxed, if you will. So. Yeah, and you know, I think a a novice, and I think uh, everyone's there at some point, and everybody's on a different uh, spot in the continuum, I call it. Um, and I I'll have one on the website that I call it the deer uh, hunter growth continuum, where you know, one end is like you're a kid, you're a real novice. The other end is like you're this wise sage, and we're all somewhere on it. But I think food plotting, a lot of guys when they first get into it, they see these big maybe. I don't know, TV, magazines, whatever. They see these huge food plots that are like agricultural fields, you know, and they, they're pristine and all this stuff. And like you mentioned, uh, that might not be the best place to kill a buck unless you have a, you know, a long-range rifle. Um, yeah. And bow hunting in particular, it's about making them feel comfortable. Like where will they show up in daylight, which is the only time you can shoot them, right? Mm-hmm. And so adding those elements of comfortability real close to where they are so they don't it doesn't take long for them before dark to get out there and feel comfortable being out there yeah yeah that's that's a great point to make because that's in the end that's you're waiting for that daylight so and if a deer doesn't feel comfortable he's definitely not going to be showing up and feeding during daylight and that's that's the big thing about not over hunting it the good thing about having multiple farms to go on and hunt uh, but another key, you know, I, I talk about getting to know what deer you're wanting to hunt a little bit. I, I'll kind of touch briefly on that. But, you know, being able to hunt those properties for 20 to 30 years is a huge benefit because I get to see these deer growing up from two on the way up to where we usually don't start hunting them until they're five or start actually pursuing, you know, to actually kill them until they're five or six. Um, but, you know, if you just got 
permission on a piece of property, it kind of changes the game. You got it. It, it all, you know, I'm not going to act like I can go right in and master a property in a year and know exactly where every, it's a learning, it's a learning stage. So that, that you, you got to kind of keep that in mind and, and that's where cameras come in really, really handy. Well, let's let's talk about that a little bit because, yeah, that's interesting. It's accumulative wisdom a lot of times. I mean, you might luck into something if you just start a hunt somewhere because time of year or just general knowledge you have. But, Ty, how do you take, you mentioned, like, knowing to, how to hunt a particular deer at the right time. Uh, tell us a little bit, like, how do you gather that knowledge to know, like, oh, I should hunt this deer on this property this time? So every deer is different. I'll, I'll kind of take an example of the deer last year that I killed a buck called, we called Chunk as a five-year-old. And uh, he was a real homebody deer and one of my favorite kind of deer, one that just sticks around all the time. And then, you know, you see him, uh, tons of pictures of him. And the other thing that really helped with that deer is learning. I learned real quick over the last two summers before I hunted him that even as a three-year-old, he was just like, challenging even the five-year-olds he was just that bully not afraid of any buck so I, I had a real good feeling if i could ever get a decoy in front of that deer it would and it was this was a lot bigger field this is a big hay field where this farmer doesn't allow me to put any food plots in there uh so i pretty much hunt the the white oak trees acorn trees in this middle draw and i just kind of sit on the points of this big hay field it's probably i don't know 20 acres or more so, but with that field, that big flat hay field, it offers great visibility. So that particular deer, I knew if I could get that decoy in front of him, which, you know, that I was early rut, November 6th last year, and he come out in the field, kind of a little buck was following a doe. He was dogging them kind of in behind and hit the antlers together. And he stopped, turned, looked, seen the decoy and come right in. So that you know just watching that deer and that i didn't really learn from camera that was actual visual sightings mm-hmm. learning how that deer reacted and i did, there was a few videos on cameras like a bucket of scraping he'd come in behind him and push him off so you learn about a deer if they're timid you know what am i going to call to that deer am i going to maybe if there's another deer in the area that's bigger more aggressive maybe you won't call to that deer so just learning each deer's demeanor how they react how they intermingle how much they travel, you know, there's, it's, there's a lot to it, uh, as far as it, and it only comes with just experience and just spending a lot of time afield. You know, if you want to be good at it and you want to kill big deer every year, year after year, you got to put the time in, you're going to get lucky every, every few years. And, you know, if you put on a little time and kill a good deer every now and again, but you got to be where big deer are and you got to put the time in. So those are some really good points. And, uh, if people are out there, you know, and assume if, uh, someone's listening to this podcast or watching it, they want to learn, right. They want to become a greater deer hunter. And mm-hmm. that's one thing. If you're, if you're going to learn from other guys, really look at their results. Like, do they have every now and again, they shoot a decent one or, you know, are they really, really consistent? If they're really, really consistent, they're doing something right, you know, and, and try mm-hmm. to figure out what that is from them. Um, and, uh, yeah, because deer are very different. They're very similar in a lot of ways, right? They have similar needs and whatever, but you you know, their personalities, you can really take advantage. And I think that's a great example of that 
where you're seeing another buck might not have reacted uh, to that decoy. Or yep. even knowing where you're at, like here in Michigan, I don't know. I've never used a decoy. I don't know how a lot of deer would react because there are less mature deer around, you know. And so uh, just knowing where you're at and then knowing the specific deer. Also, talk real quick about, and, and then I want to get to a story uh, about a dreamer, mm-hmm. a particular buck, and just kind of apply some of these things to, to that story. But as far as keeping uh, pressure low, you know, uh, I mean, that's key because if, if especially mature deer, if, if they know they're being hunted, it, it's over, right? Uh, so what are some of the things that you do to really, you have multiple obviously, so, yeah. properties you hunt? Yeah, the multiple farms, and we, we were going to touch on this a little bit earlier, but all the farms I hunt on, there's other hunters on. So I don't have sole access to any of the farms I hunt on. Um, which we talked about landowners. It's great to find that landowner. That's super nice. And, but the unfortunate part is he's usually super nice to everybody. Right. Yeah. It's somewhat <laughs> unfortunate for the guys that are a little more dedicated. Um, so all the properties I hunt on, there's other guys that hunt it as well. Um, most of them are pretty good hunters. Um, they're all nice. I don't really have any problems. I mean, I have had some problems in the past. So, you know, 30 years of hunting, you're going to run into some guys that, you know, ruffle your feathers a little bit, but we've pretty much tried to, um, separate where we can and hunt on each property. So when I know I'm going into the area I can hunt, it hasn't been bothered by somebody else. And that's a huge key. I like to keep my stands fresh. I don't want to be going in and out. I don't want the deer knowing my pattern. So I try to switch up my entrance route. Sometimes I, you know, we usually have, you know, back when I was younger and my 20s 30s i we i mean we would put 50 sets up a year now wow i've realized that was way overkill (laughs) and you know i always just thought the more the merrier back then but now we're down to probably about 25 or so different double sets which is still 50 stands because we put two stands in every tree but you know it still gives us a plenty of variation of winds to hunt uh you know food plots bedding areas you know morning hunts afternoon hunts so we try to set up for different, you know, situations when it comes to that. Um, but so I forgot, sorry, what was, I lost my train of thought talking about that. What was the actual question? I um, <laughs> yeah, it was intrusion, like keeping deer okay. from knowing they're being hunted basically. Yeah. So what, what we try to do, obviously scent control is pretty big. I try to spray down majority of my hunts. I don't always spray down, but I, I typically try to hunt the wind as much as I can um, for as, for the most part until the rut hits. And then I, I'm pretty, I'm pretty risky. I, th- I put all the cards on the table when it comes to the rut, I, I'll go hunt stands, you know, right in the middle of a draw where I don't really care what the wind's doing. Cause I don't, I'm not sure where he's going to be coming from, but when I'm hunting a specific deer during early season, late season, when they're on their feeding patterns, I'm almost always afternoon hunts. Very rarely do I go in in the morning just cause it's it's such an unpredictable time. You can bump more deer and do more harm than good. So I always go in in the afternoon and then, um, you know, if it means sitting in the stand for 30, 45 minutes, if a deer comes in right at last light, we can't shoot him because it's too low a camera light or, or if it's too late to shoot or there's other deer. I mean, I've sit in my stand for an hour or more after dark waiting for a deer to leave because I know it's him and I don't want to bump him. I don't want to disturb him at all. So just being able to have multiple farms, which I'm, 
do, and like I said earlier, I'm very blessed with that, you know, where I can bounce around and hunt. And I'm also blessed. I always hunt with somebody. So I'm either filming or hunting. And I'm able, even if I can't go hunt a specific deer, I can usually go on another farm with, you know, my dad or my daughter or my son or a couple of buddies I hunt with, you know. So I'm always getting to hunt, whether I'm behind the camera or in front of the camera. Right. I get that same rush either way. So as long as I'm in the woods, I'm happy. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest things is guys get real anxious and real excited and hunt before it's the right time, you know, in the right spot just because they want to hunt, right? It's it's hunting season. Oh, yeah. Um, and being having some other options of where to go, whether it be filming somebody else or some public land somewhere helps you save those spots till the intel, you know, you're what you've learned about the deer, your trail cameras, all that tells you, yeah, this is the right time to hunt it. And you, you, you know, still were able to hunt, but you didn't mess that up because you were just anxious about it. I'll make one quick note too. When uh, you kind of brought a thought in my head that a lot of times I'll go back and won't just look, especially if I have years of history with a buck from like three, four five, by the time he reaches five, I'll, I'll go back and you see some patterns, especially early season and late season where, I mean, sometimes it's crazy patterns, like within a day, like oh, the yeah. same deer. I've had deer, like some bucks like show up within a day that I may only see that deer once or twice a year and he's within a day. So I'll go back years and look at trail cam photos and see when deer daylight, see what they were doing, try to d- predict the weather, you know, see what the weather and you can get on and go and look what the weather was on weather apps to see what it was when he daylighted at that time and then come back and, you know, kind of see if, you know, duplicate in the future. And it's, it's, it's definitely paid off in, in, in some pretty good ways and for me. So. Yeah. That's, that's some high IQ stuff there, Ty. I've noticed that too. And I, the people, different people have written about it. I think recently the last few years, uh, seeing the same thing that they're, mm-hmm. they're pretty, uh, repetitious, even like you said, even if they're not living in that area, all of a sudden they'll show up a certain few day window. And mm-hmm. I actually shot uh, the deer I got last year in Ohio was the same way. I had pictures of him from the previous year and just like clockwork, he showed back up. So, well, as we wrap up here, uh, talking about private land, um, Ty, what's a specific story where some of this stuff really came together? Well, you, you just told one, but you mentioned this bug dreamer. Um, tell us that story and how some of these you know, principles, these uh, tactics you've shared kind of came together with that special book. So Dreamer kind of started, I kind of noticed him first when he was a three-year-old, just a perfect, beautiful 10 point and uh, not, not, nothing special, but just a good deer. Just like, I'm going to keep my eye on that deer. And I actually named him Dreamer that year because he just had a real pretty face. I had a picture of him with his, the sun shining on him and just, just, I don't know, I just got the nickname Dreamer early on, which usually I don't name a deer until later just because a lot of them disappear and it's pointless to kind of but i i kind of do that to identify i don't do it to like name the deer so i'm going to kill something it's not about that it's more to identify you know what each deer you know but uh with him it was weird because i got i actually was hunting a different deer uh when he was three i ended up killing a buck we call hijack which was very similar type situations for these deer both of these deer i created a food plot for that specific deer and right next to where they were bedding. So hijack 
we created a food plot for him. I ended up killing him the year after we created it uh, or made it. It was a clover plot. And uh, so it was the second year clover plot when I killed him in there. And Dreamer actually was lived in that draw with him for the most part and was in that food plot all the time. So when I shot Hijack, in my mind, he was going to take it over. And, you know, two years later, I'd, I'd shoot him out of the same plot. Well, at four years old, I started getting less and less pictures of him. I was still getting pictures of him, but he wasn't living there anymore. And on the south side of that farm, it had gotten really overgrown. Um, so I, you know, at four years old, I knew I weren't going to kill him. At five years old, I didn't get a picture of him all summer. And I'm like, and I'd found one of his sheds at four. So I knew he was good chance he was alive. So I slipped over on that south side of that farm into this thicket and found a couple of pretty, pretty fresh scrapes. And this was in season. This was probably second week, or I'm sorry, about a week before October, third week of September. So, so a week or two into season and, uh, found, found a pretty good fresh scrape over there, set up the camera over it. He was the first deer on there and he went from 140 some inches to a hundred upper, like 168 or so. So right away, boom, he's, he was number one on my hit list. I was all excited, but there was also another buck that was with him or that wasn't with him, but it, that was using that scrape line. Also, that was an eight year old buck, uh, that I called Holyfield. Well, sure enough, the eight year old shows up first. I'm not going to pass an eight year old deer up. I don't care how big the other one is shot him. So the dreamer story had to go another year, but which just let me, you know, more Intel. So that scrape line, right where that scrape line was at, I ended up going in. We cleared all that out. Everybody, I always keep saying me, it's really a group effort. My dad, my buddy, Andy, Eric, some of the the HB guys, it's a group of hunters that hunt together. So, but I went in and cleared out that plot. We cleared out that plot, set it up little, probably a third of an acre and uh, put it in clover. And that next, you know, ended up finding a shed right by there. And he was started getting pictures. He's one of the few deer that I started taking pictures of in the earlier in the year. I usually wait till July, but I think I put a camera out in like April or May. I think it was May. Started getting pictures of him just because I wanted to see his antler growth. Well, he blew up into 182 inches that year. And all these went from a, he went from a 10 point at three and four years old. Then he had splits as a, as a five-year-old. And then as a six-year-old, he blew up to like 20 points. So really cool deer, cool story, but just, I had a great entrance and exit. I had like a, I actually would walked up along this road, a pretty busy road the whole way, had good road noise going into my stand, which was only 50 yards off the major, pretty major road that I set this food plot in. And, um, yeah, he just started, I knew it was close to the bedding area. He took it over right away and stayed there all summer. I would get pictures of him literally every day if he wasn't there. I was, I'd get worried, but then the, the kickback drawback to that is like anything over here in Missouri, right at the beginning of the deer season here, the acorns, white oaks start dropping big time. Oh yeah. And so he kind of transitioned his pattern. So I ended, didn't end up getting an opportunity at him until in middle of, or until the beginning of October, but you know, was able to make that perfect shot practice, made sure we kind of talked about that a little bit briefly earlier, but, um, that was one big key. You know, I can't stress enough to continue. Everybody practices all summer long and then deer season starts and everybody's ready to hunt, but nobody's ready to practice anymore. Right. So just continue that. And I, with that deer, I knew I was going to get that opportunity. I just really felt good about it. So 
I mean, I was shooting three or four times a week and every time I, that's, I just pictured me envisioning shooting that deer. And when he come out at, you know, 22, 23 yards, it was just perfect shot. He went 25 yards and dropped right there in the food plot. So it was, it was a pretty incredible hunt. Just, they don't always, you know, end up that perfect, but when you, when you do your homework and when you set it up right and you have a pretty foolproof plan, it can happen more often, you know, than not. So. so as we wrap up, here are some key high IQ takeaways and challenges. Are your kill plots engineered for where you want them or the bucks you want to shoot dictate? Really think about this and what you can do to not let the land dictate, but the buck or bucks dictate where you place these for better success on specific deer. What are you doing to remain undetected to all deer during season and what may you need to change to accomplish this better? Including changing when you hunt, how much you hunt, times of the day you hunt certain areas, how many hunting locations you actually have, all these things being of key importance. And check out Ty's hunts for both Dreamer and Chunk on the Heartland Bowhunters YouTube channel. We just talked about them and you can watch them. I'll link that below. And if you have not, sign up for our newsletter so you don't miss any great Deer IQ content. We're always putting new stuff up there, whether it be videos, a blog, or you name it. Check that out and sign up so you don't miss any of that. And next time, I'll finish our Private Land series with a wrap-up. I'll give more specific comments and tie a lot of the best stuff together. And we'll even have a few guests come back and share some of their favorite Private Land tips. You won't want to miss it. It'll be great stuff. And I'll see you on the conclusion of the Private Land series.